Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is another edition of the Remnant Podcast. If I sound uh, beleaguered, it's only because I am. Uh, We had the commentary magazine roast of Jonah Goldberg this week, and uh, I'll talk more about that at the end, but I was scandalously overserved at that, and I haven't quite uh, recovered. And I was supposed to do a podcast yesterday out of uh, New York City, but once again, Rich Lowry screwed me. And so instead, um, I did record my debut appearance on the editor's podcast, which was, um, I laughed, I cried. It was it was a really emotional experience for me. Actually, I was kind of pissed because I kind of liked complaining about how I'd never been invited on, and now I can't... I, 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 you know, in politics, some people want the issue and some people want the policy, and I, I rather have the issue because I like to have things to complain about. But. It's like when the Nats finally let Teddy w- win the president's race, you just, and you can never go back. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so anyway, there's that, and so as comeuppance, we decided to have uh, my friend and colleague uh, Ramesh Panuru uh, parachute in. I've known Ramesh for a very long time. I've known him. Um, Back when we used to have this rule that you could tell, because Ramesh in his early days was not a great holder of liquor, because mm. um, he weighs, I don't know, by, you know, it's been years since I, you know, I'm no Dan Foster, so I, I'm not great at the sort of carnival weight guessing game, but I would guess Ramesh weighs somewhere around 85 pounds. And, um, um, and he was so precocious, because A, he's a Vulcan. Um, I think he had his first op-ed in the Financial Times when he was 19. Um, I believe Robbie George, uh, Princeton Robbie George, not the New York Daily News Robbie George, once said that Ramesh was the best student that he had ever had at Princeton, which is saying something. Um, but uh, he was so young when I first knew him. Um, and we used to have this rule that you could tell how much Ramesh had had to drink the night before by how wet your shoes were. Because you would ask Ramesh some question about, you know, abortion policy or immigration or the federal reserve it doesn't really matter because he knows everything because again he's a vulcan and you know that sort of gesture where you say well and you sort of like open up your hands kind of thing he would have his drink in his hand and he would go well and then it would splash out and get on like your shins or on your shoes and i can report he's much better at holding his liquor he's fine you know um but uh anyway he's been a friend for a very long time and uh so Let's go do that now, and we'll talk to Ramesh. So yesterday, I was in New York, and I was supposed to do the um, uh, this podcast from there, and I was going to have Charlie Cook and uh, Rich Lowry on to talk um, about various and sundry things. And, of course, Lowry, because he's a horrible monster, was so late coming to do the editor's podcast, I couldn't, in fact do my podcast there, so I had to make up for it here, and so I figured I'd show them by having Ramesh Paniru, um, who's probably equal to one Charlie Cook and one Rich Lowry in terms of intellectual candle power. Uh, he's also my colleague here at the American Enterprise Institute. He's my colleague at National Review. He's a colleague. He's a fellow fellow at NRI. Uh, we are close, longtime friends. We've known each other for a very long time. Our families are friends. Um, I love his daughters. I love his wife, um, but all in appropriate ways. Uh, Ramesh, thank you for being here. Glad to be on. I think, though, that candle power is not especially strong. Isn't that, but isn't can, intellectual can, uh, firepower? Is that what I, I was looking fire, for? I prefer firepower. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, and I promise I will keep uh, references to you being a Vulcan to a, a minimum. I can't rule it out entirely. So um, well, They certainly don't affect me emotionally. <laughs> So contrary to um, a lot of hate mail that uh, National Review and and Ramesh gets, um, Ramesh is not, in fact, from India. He is, uh, or even from Asia. Uh, He is from the same place as Superman, correct? You're from Kansas. Right. I'm uh, from a little bit more urbanized uh, part of Kansas than than the Kent family. Mm -hmm. But we we are friends. I I would would assume so. I, I would I would assume he would sort of have you pegged to become a supervillain later in your lives, but my uh, uh, just one little cute story I'll share because you know these podcasts are loosey goosey, right? Yes, they're very loosey goosey. Um, 
my my wife was driving my then six-year-old and a friend somewhere and uh, said, oh, you know, it just occurred to me, both of your daddies are from Kansas. And my daughter, Betsy, pipes up with her trademark confidence, yes, my daddy is from a part of Kansas called India. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, some listeners might want to hear the story about how uh, when the Dalai Lama was here at AI once, um, he was looking for affirmation. Well, you tell a story about the Dalai Lama and and pointing to you in the audience. Um, well, it was a warm day in my <laughs> defense. So I had drifted off just a little bit, which is, of course, exactly the moment that the Dalai Lama <laughs> points to me and says... Apropos of what, I am still not sure. You're from India, right? <laughs> and being, you know, summoned from kind of half sleep uh, in the instant, I could only think to uh, to mutter, uh, actually, I'm from Kansas. At which point Arthur Brooks, who was interviewing the Dalai Lama, stepped in and said, they all look like that there. Right. Um, but it's a, I think I was actually microaggressed by the Dalai Lama, <laughs> which very few people um, can say. Actually, and he, he did it again, as it turns out, the next time we met. I remember that. I was, I, that's why I, there were a handful a of us serial, who were laughing very hard He's a serial microaggressor at the yeah. Dalai Lama. Not many people know this about him. But, but here, so here, this raises an interesting question. I was thinking about this the other day. You're, people call you Dinesh a lot, right? That, that, is, that has been known to happen every yeah. once in a while. So I like I, to think people call him Ramesh sometimes. I'm sure that happens. The, um, the rhyming does not help. But, you know, I for a long time I, I chalked it up to sort of a casual, lazy, fairly harmless racism. You know, <laughs> um, of, but then it, it dawned on me, I get confused for Sebastian Gorka and Steve Hayes all the time. And it would never occur to me to say, oh, all, you know, all white people look alike to you, right? So some of it is just a brain malfunction, right? And it may, it's like they go through their mental hard drive and they search Indian rhymes with ends and esh, and maybe it's not racist at all. Oh, I, yeah, I would put it in a in a different category with very sort of tangential connection to racism. And look, I myself often find that white guy names seem fairly interchangeable. <laughs> like it's always a Tim or a Mike or a John. You know, it just. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. All right, so the pressing question is, what is the correct pronunciation of Ramesh? Well, uh, my parents named me Ramesh. Uh Um, That is the classical pronunciation of those letters. Um, When I got to grade school, um, I found that my older brothers had acquiesced in teachers calling us Panurus instead of Panurus. Family pride asserted itself. I insisted that it be Panuru, uh, but then I, I picked my battle and allowed it to be Ramesh, and, okay. uh, and it's carried forward. Um, when I was a kid, when my parents, when my father told my brother and I that our original family name wasn't Goldberg but Stavoskovsky, we tried, and the, the, the man at Ellis Island or some version of this mythological story um, forced us to accept Goldberg instead. We, uh, for a while, we tried to use Stavoskovsky, and it just it just never stuck. But you should have used it as like a code name, at least. Yeah, there was some of that, and and for a while, I used it as one of my middle initials. But it just legally it wasn't, and it you know, and at some point, you know, I when I was a kid, we were strange. You know, my dad, my brother once got me to work with him on a project of making uh, protest signs that read "Bring back the czar." So we were in a sort of weird anti-communist phase back then too and anyway neither here nor there so um i want to avoid some of the crazy wonky stuff which is a lot of your expertise but since i have you and since i have to figure out what a column i'm going to write about um what was what did you think of first of all what did you think of the virginia elections overblown overinterpreted significant not significant well, I've been uh, so knee-deep in uh, boring policy minutiae about tax reform that I haven't had a chance to look through the exit polls or even a lot of the commentary about Virginia. Um, but my sense of it is that um, this really was driven a lot by reaction to President Trump. But I think you have to step back a second and and, and distinguish between sort of the reaction to having any Republican president in the White House and the reaction to Trump specifically. Um, I think that you'd have to have bet 
knowing only that a Republican won the White House last year, um, that the Democrats would be favored to win the Virginia governor's race this year. 2009, with Obama in the White House, the Republicans uh, had a landslide of their own Mm -hmm. in Virginia. I do think that some of the particular characteristics of President Trump and some of his actions probably made that, almost certainly made that reaction uh, more intense, that um, Trump has done a lot to drive um, white college-educated voters, of whom there are quite a few, away. Particularly in Virginia. Yes, in Virginia, away from the Republican Party. And so I'd say in places like that, in blue places, in purple places, it's going to be hard for Republicans. Um, I think there was a stronger case in 2016 that voters were distinguishing between Trump and other Republicans than there is now. And I think that makes a certain amount of sense. Right. But, I mean, it just seems to me as a sort of fact of logic that you have a, a republic, you have you have a president who's at 34, 38 percent approval. His party has probably got a headwind in an off-year election the first year of his presidency, right? I mean, although we've never had one with this low approval rating. But it also just seems sort of obvious to me that the Republican Party, right? So the the Republican Party is split. And Trump is not adding a lot of people to the Republican column. So you would just sort of assume that any association with with, a guy running for governor would would do badly. I guess the question is, does this actually portend anything significant for, you know, the 2018 elections? Well, you know, there's plenty of time for things to change. Um, and they can always get worse. And they can, yes, they can <laughs> change for the worse. That's right. The, um, I would say, you know, if you're in a district that Trump didn't carry uh, and you're a House Republican, I think you need to be extremely worried right. uh, about the election next year. The headwinds are against you, not just because Trump's approval is so low, but also just, again, because you've got a Republican in the White House, that will tend to mean the Democrats are more revved up right. to protest, whereas Republicans will tend to be a little bit more complacent. That's just a standard out-year pattern. Uh, but, I, but, I, but the fact that he's so low in the approval ratings um, makes it worse. But isn't, isn't part of also the part of the problem that Trump has on a theory, tried to make the Republican Party's primary constituency sort of lower income, lower educated, white working class people. And I know you believe, and I agree with you, that the party has ignored a lot of those people for too long, right? So I'm not criticizing that. But they've done it in a way that has turned its back on what arguably was the core constituency of the Republican Party, which was slightly more upper middle class, married, suburban families, more educated. And if you lose those people, isn't that fairly disastrous for a lot of congressional districts going into 2018? Yeah, absolutely. That um, it, it does appear right now as though Trump has accelerated a shift that was already underway among Republicans away from college-educated white voters toward um, white voters without college degrees. You know, you, you say that I've been sort of in favor of that, uh, and that's true with the asterisk that I would also like to hold on to the suburbanite. <laughs> well, yes, and also I think that uh, that Republicans need to expand among Hispanic voters, right. among Asian voters, among Black voters, and uh, I don't see as much of that happening right now. Uh, a, a play just for the white working class voters doesn't appear likely to be able to be a sustainable strategy for a Republican majority going forward. Okay, so uh, switching gears, since you said you were um, spelunking through the uh, caves of the tax reform stuff, what do you actually think of the Republican plan, or at least the House version that we've seen? So the Republicans, I think, have pretty well thought through ideas about what to do about the taxation of business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think everything else in this bill has been subordinated to that. Parts of the reform to the individual tax code are there because you've got sort of longstanding Republican interests uh, and you've got sort of longstanding Republican hobby horses. Uh, and parts of it are there because 
they need to do something to make the bill a little bit more politically viable. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think everything is basically subordinated to the goal of improving the taxation of business. And I think they achieve that, Mm -hmm. that the, the, the business provisions are good, that our corporate tax rate is too high, um, that it makes us a less attractive place to invest. Um, I think they're probably a little bit too generous to business um, and should should scale back mm-hmm. some of their tax cuts there. But the result is that the individual tax code reforms, uh, particularly in the House version of the bill, we'll see what the Senate version looks like, is a little bit of a mess. Um, there's just, you know, some tax, some people's tax rates go up, some people's tax rates go down. There's no particular rhyme or reason to whose goes up and whose goes down. Um, and I think it's it's going to be hard to sell it that way. I think tax reform is always hard to sell, right? Because if you you are going to if you're going to have a tax reform that scales back tax breaks, some people's taxes are going to go up, right? But if the overall pattern makes sense, if there's a coherence to it, it might be easier to sell it. But to say you know, well, you make six figures and um, you're in a high tax state and you're going to pay more, but meanwhile, this hedge fund guy right. who makes you know seven times your income is going to pay a lot less. Uh, I think that's going to be hard for people to justify. So when you say the business side, you basically mean the corporate tax stuff, not the pass-through stuff per se, right? I, my understanding is that the pass-through stuff, which I have a very hard time holding, my, you know, getting my brain around for long enough to understand it, is is kind of a political Rube Goldberg, no relation, hot mess, no? Well, the pass-through side is connected to the corporate side because both for political and substantive reasons, they didn't want to have the corporate tax rate a lot lower than the, the pass-through the pass-through tax rate. So they've sort of kept the gap around where it is now. Um, and, I mean, in a way, you could see that, uh, again, as a kind of politically it's subordinate to the right. corporate tax reform. I do think the corporate tax reform is probably where you get the real economic growth out of this bill. I, you know, I, I tend to differ from a lot of my supply side friends in thinking they're right about the direction of change, mm-hmm. that it's got a positive effect on economic growth, but, but they overestimate the magnitude. Yeah. Uh, and they, they make it sound as though this is sort of the key to um, super fast growth. And I'm skeptical of that. Yeah. I, sorry, because I've been meaning to ask you this anyway. I have a mutual friend, but I'll I don't know if I was talking to him off the record or not, so I'll just leave it as a mutual friend. And once we stop recording, I'll tell you who it was, um, who's a major tax wonk, one of our guys. He was making a very impassioned case that the estate tax thing is actually a really powerful pro-growth move because it's not so, – everyone likes to say, oh, it's only this handful of families. It's these rich people. It's like 85 farmers, blah, 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 blah. What, what is left out of that is that there's an enormous number of people – who organize their life around avoiding it. And so the avoidance costs are a huge disincentive to build on your company. They cause people to liquidate their assets, all this kind of stuff. Do you buy that? Do you think that's really true? Do you think it's a huge, if you've got rid of the estate tax, you would have a a massive reinvestment in people's businesses and whatnot? I looked at this years ago, and when I did, it seemed to me that there was some evidence for that, um, that the estate tax does stimulate a lot of really unproductive economic activity just around tax avoidance, um, and that you could... You know, redirect some of those resources to toward productive ends if you got rid of the estate tax. It's funny that the argument about the estate tax has almost no reference to economics. Uh-huh. The arguments about it are almost entirely about fairness. Most right, people right. support getting rid of the estate tax, uh, and they su- appear to support it whether or not you call it the estate tax or the death tax, right. just because they think that uh, people should be able to pass on their estates. Um, to uh, to inheritors. Uh, and then the other side, um, the opposition to it makes an argument based on inequality and fairness as they see it. Um, and so there isn't a ton of attention that's placed on this question. So one of the questions is the, is the unproductive activity that the tax creates. And the other is, does it reduce the incentive to save and invest um, if you can't pass it on to your heirs? Which I would think that to some degree it has to. Yeah. I remember... Years ago, I think it was Chris DeMuth wrote something about this, about how someone had actually done, had crunched the numbers, and people who were on their deathbeds, when there was the promise of estate tax relief in the next calendar fiscal year, 
they actually lived longer. Um, like it actually, they actually prolonged their lives because there's some social science evidence that that if you have something to look forward to, a, a daughter's wedding, you know, some award ceremony, that people actually can live longer because they just hold on a while longer. And the repeal, the scheduled repeal or diminishment of the death tax actually kept a bunch of people who were in the deathbeds living a little bit longer. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's really a heartwarming story. <laughs> I'm always telling my Vulcan friends that human beings are fascinating people. <laughs> all right, so we're going to switch gears here again. Um, uh, first of all, I talked to Ben Sass about this a little while ago, and I'm kind of curious at your position. How much do you inundate your – because for listeners who don't know, uh, the lovely and talented April Pernuru, um is a political force in her own right and and is much more intimidating than Ramesh's, uh, much like my wife is much more intimidating than I am. But I was talking to Ben Sass about how do you – how much do you let your kids absorb the political stuff, or do you just try to keep them at bay? Well – They'll ask questions sometimes, the older one who's 12, um, more than the younger one. Um, and our answers uh, vary, you know, uh-huh. so there's only so much that, that they can absorb. Our older one wanted to watch um, one of the presidential debates, and it was right after the Access Hollywood tape yeah. had come out, and uh, and we had to tell her no. Right. Uh, we had to discourage <laughs> her civic interest because um, we were not going to um, talk about that whole uh, subject um, on uh, the presidential elections timetable <laughs> and, uh, you know, with with that particular hook. Um, and so I guess the... the, the... The second question is, and we've talked about this many times over drinks, but um, you know my longstanding theory that the single most, how to put this, the single most underappreciated factor, it's not the most important factor, but it's the most underappreciated factor in the positions that public intellectuals take and pundits and whatnot take is the role of their spouses behind the scenes, right? You know, for me, so often you can look at people and you're like, oh, my God, why are they sort of drifting so far in one ideological direction or another that seems counterintuitive? And then you say, oh, well, it's because their wife is making them do it or their husband is whatever or they've just got divorced and they're, they want to seem more palatable in the dating market. Um, or they're getting divorced and their politics is suddenly suffused with a bitterness and rage. <laughs> yeah, of course, in some cases, that. the bitterness and rage also helps explain the divorce in the first place. That's right. I mean, the causal arrows go both ways. Um, how I mean, I, I want to be delicate with this, and I, I, I don't really care about getting in trouble with you, but I really don't want to get in trouble with, with, with April. Um, or Jess. Or Jess. Oh, I'm perfectly willing to confess I'm terrified of my wife. But um, what, um, how much do you think, how, A, do you think I'm right? And B, how would you, in the most diplomatic terms possible, explain how you deal with these things when, when, when you and April disagree on um, a matter of politics or public policy? Well, um, we rarely do. Uh-huh. Um, we we usually see eye to eye on things. Um, and uh, when we don't, you know, April actually doesn't give me a hard time uh, about it uh, or vice versa. Um, you know, she worked for the Jeb Bush campaign and I was uh, I was neutral mm-hmm. uh, in the presidential primaries. I, I, Ted Cruz is a good friend and he was also running. Um, and uh, and I like to joke that Bobby Jindal, as a an Indian American Catholic convert who went to an Ivy League school, was <laughs> practically my demographic twin. Um, so uh, I just decided I was going to um, not endorse anybody and uh, call them as I saw them and uh-huh. say positive and negative things about each candidate. And occasionally that included some negative comments about Jeb Bush. And uh, and I think that. Uh, from time to time, that probably caused people to at least roll their eyeballs at April. Right. Um, but uh, but she never told me, you know, please don't do this or uh, <laughs> or anything like that. Um, yeah, because I mean, I, I remember I used to float this theory sort of quietly and and subtly about Paul Krugman and how you know because you go back and read Krugman in the nineties, he was. I mean, I didn't always agree with him, but he was like really reasonable in part because he hated the Clintons so much. Uh, but his stuff on economics seemed like he was like this guy that that conservatives could get around and or rally around on at least on some questions. And then by the time he got his New York Times column, he was just 
by my lights, I don't want to get you in any trouble, um, sort of lunatic. And then that New York Times, the New Yorker magazine piece came out, and it revealed. And I, my, so my theory was that his spouse was playing an undue influence. I mean, that to me, that's always like, where is the missing magnet that's pulling the arrow on the compass? Um, and and then the New Yorker piece came out, and among other things, it revealed that his cats are named after various philosophers, um, but that uh, his wife punches up his copy for his column to give it that extra, you know, Bush is a war criminal oomph. Um, and I, just, and I, I had a similar theory about Andrew Sullivan back in the day, and that's why I think it's so liberating when you have a spouse who is ideologically simpatico or even to your right. It gives you a little breathing room. And I think that these these mixed mar- these mixed political marriages always kind of fascinate me, like the Carville Madeline thing. I either either they don't take their marriage too seriously, or they don't take politics too seriously, because I can't see how you could sustain that uh, over a long haul. So traditionally, this was uh, this was the case with a lot of Republican men, um, uh, and I think particularly older um, Republicans who had been married. Uh, before the '60s, mm-hmm. and the men moved right, and the uh, and the wives moved left, right? Um, and you could see that influence, but that's less the case. Uh, I remember after the 1994 election, I was talking to a, a Republican politician who had uh, had voted for the assault weapons ban, and said his wife wouldn't speak to him for two <laughs> weeks because she was so right wing. <laughs> Um, that's sort of like Clarence Thomas and Ginny. I mean, Ginny's, I think, considerably to right to the right of of Clarence on a lot of those things. But I, I don't want to get in anybody trouble. I don't know that for sure. Well, yeah, you, want, you know, and who knows? I certainly don't know much about uh, Paul Krugman psychology, nor do I care to find out much <laughs> more. Um, but look, of course, people's spouses have yeah. have big influences on them, and and their children um, when they reach an age to have uh, political opinions can often have that kind of influence, too. My old boss, 25, 30 years ago, Ben Wattenberg, was convinced that the Johnson administration fell apart largely because the male members of the cabinet completely caved to their wives and daughters on everything from civil rights to the to the Vietnam War. And, and they were right to do so on the civil rights stuff and all, all that, of course, and arguably on, the, on the, the Vietnam War. But he just made it, he said that the 60s, Awaking of feminism made all of these guys just terrified of the women folk in their lives, which I always thought was sort of interesting. So switching gears again, you brought up Ted Cruz. I was on a panel a week or so ago with uh, Tucker Carlson and Steve Hayes, and Tucker made the case that he thought, he said, I, he admitted, he said, I have no evidence of this, it was just his theory, that Cruz is right now working very hard to figure out how to be a Trumpist candidate with, with, but with meat on the bones in terms of an ideological agenda, and that he's going to go, he's going to cultivate a more populist sort of plan, and 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 strategy for 2020 or sometime thereafter. Do you think that's true? Do you think he could pull that off? Well, I'd say that that basic strategy is more clearly being followed by Senator Tom Cotton yeah. of Arkansas, but it is probably also being followed um, by Senator Cruz, and I think. It makes a certain amount of sense. With or without Trump, you've got these different voting populations within the Republican Party, and uh, some Republican politician has to figure out a way to get them all marching in the same direction. Yeah, I mean, I guess my problem is is that with this theory, particularly when it comes to Ted, but also Tom Cotton, is that people are constantly underestimating, like Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity, Steve Bannon. There are a lot of people out there who want, for for good reasons and bad, or understandable reasons and less understandable reasons, they want to make the case that Trumpism is this deep, serious... Right, it's like this coherent ideology. Right, this nationalist agenda, and they're... they're, and they're and their big problem with that theory is, of course, Donald Trump himself. That's right, and that's why uh, so many of the sort of intellectual supporters of Trump have this dilemma where they either can support Trumpism as they define it, or they can actually support what Trump is doing, because the two don't work, go in tandem. And I still think that the, a big chunk of what made Trump appealing to people was the entertainment value yeah. of him, right? Sure, I think that's right. The personality uh, and the celebrity, um, the ability to drive media attention, all of that was enormously important. I just think this isn't really an either-or um, question. I do think that there was uh, an ideological or programmatic element as well that helped him. The, I think the primary showed that there were a lot of Republican voters 
who were at the very least not moved by the old Republican agenda on trade and entitlements and spending and regulation and health care and so sure. forth, and some of whom were actually hostile to that agenda. And I do think that immigration in particular helped Trump a lot and uh, and that he might not have become the nominee if um, either he had taken a different view of that or sort of the party establishment had taken a different view of it in the years leading right. up to the election. Yeah. So I mean, that raises a good question. You've been probably, you and John O'Sullivan, I guess, and Rich, the, the, the sort of a troika at NR for the last 25 years, making this argument that if um, responsible politicians don't deal with immigration, it'll create an opening for irresponsible politicians to deal with immigration, right? How vindicated do you feel by the change in the, the, the turn of events in the last year or so? And... Um, um, and how do you think the actual immigration thing is going to yeah. play itself out? Well, I would say, uh, you know, I, I don't get to feel vindicated so often. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I think that that analysis has proven true, and not just in the United States. I think that uh, right. in France uh, and in Germany uh, and really no, Austria, throughout Europe, yeah, uh, you've you've seen something similar happen. Um, <clears throat> I think in Britain, in a way, there's the, there have, there's been a little bit more responsible leadership um, that has absorbed some of the anti-immigration message and has, has kept um, the fringes from being uh, too empowered. Um, although, you know, your, your mileage may vary on that. Um, I think, though, that we're not quite, you know, we don't have yet a, a sensible debate on the immigration issue or a sensible policy on it. Um, I think that, uh, you know, what you would want to do is combine an amnesty for most illegal immigrants who are already here um, with uh, a reduction in unskilled immigration mm-hmm. and a and real enforcement going forward. So new hires um, have to be verified to be in the country legally. I think that's a policy mix that would command majority support, but in the country, not necessarily in Congress. Um, because I think there are activists on the right uh, for whom um, amnesty is just a no-go, mm. uh, regardless of the surrounding circumstances. And uh, there are uh, folks um, who find the idea of uh, reducing immigration levels um, too odious to contemplate. But so maybe you're not the, per- the perfect person to ask this about the Democratic Party. I'll concede that. Um, but... You know, Bernie Sanders had that perfectly legitimate sort of social democratic view that, you know, you know, open borders is that Koch brothers evil thing, right? I mean, he he used to be. It's a plot against the workers. That's right. Basic take. And um, there's a famous interview with Ezra Klein toward the beginning of the last presidential cycle where he outlined that view. Right, and and you know, Barbara Jordan used to make a perfectly legitimate, reasonable argument that. Immigration was bad for native workers, for for African Americans, and all these kinds of things. I'm I'm not crediting or arguing with it. I'm just characterizing what what the argument used to be, and they used to be able to make a the, there are people on the left who could make a prudential case, right, a pragmatic case based in policy. It seems to me though that once the Democrats or the left buy into this idea that any restrictions on immigration amount to quote unquote white supremacy, they can't compromise on anything. Um, is there a place for a Trumpka or the organized labor or the social de- the, the what used to be called the old white left <laughs> um, to make this sort of prudential case about immigration? I think there's much less room for it than there used to be, and partly it's because the people to whom that old message um, of sort of left skepticism about immigration was supposed to appeal are no longer in the Democratic coalition. Right. Um, those white working class voters, those union members have left. Um, and they've left partly because the Democrats have become so extreme on this issue. You know, you, you mentioned Barbara Jordan. You know, for about two minutes, the Clinton administration in the mid-90s um, embraced the Jordan Commission's recommendation that you reduce immigration levels. And as recently as 2006, 2007, it was pretty common for liberal Democrats, including Hillary Clinton, to at least gesture toward the concerns of immigration skeptical voters by saying, for example, illegal immigrants shouldn't have driver's licenses. Right, right, right. But by... 2016, 
um, she was very far left on yeah. that issue. She was saying that she wanted to go beyond Obama's executive actions on immigration, actions that themselves went beyond what Obama had thought was legally possible before he made them. She was saying that we should bring back some of the people that we'd already deported for being <laughs> illegal immigrants, which is something that didn't get a lot of publicity, but I thought was pretty jaw-dropping. Um, and yeah, you know, there's this, there's this theme, you know, nobody is illegal, no human being is illegal, deportation is a kind of human rights violation. Well, if you really believe that, then you simply can't have immigration laws. You right. can't enforce them. You can't have borders. Right. Um, and uh, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty extreme view, but I think it has become part of the self-image of a lot of liberals, not just the activists, but even the liberal voters. And the polling on Democratic views on immigration suggests that your average Democratic voter is considerably to the left of where your average Democratic voter was 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, okay. All right, last question, because I know you got to get out of here. I wanted to subject you to one of my rants about um, how neoconservatism is being abused, but I'll save it for another time. I've asked everybody who's been on so far the same, same version of the same question. What is the most surprising thing either to you or that you think other people would find surprising about how Washington really works? And I, give, so you're not don't feel blindsided. I'll tell you what other people said. Right. So uh, Ben Sass gave a funny story about the the acceptability and, and popularity of nudity in the Senate locker room. Um uh, Steve Hayes talked about this myth that all we care about is going to Georgetown cocktail parties. Uh, Yuval Levin gave a very thoughtful, um, and you should know that on that podcast I said to Yuval that there are, there are some who would argue that Yuval is even smarter than Ramesh Panuru, and he pushed back on that. So I don't, I don't want you to get into a big fight in the yard. But Yuval said that uh, nobody really knows what they're doing here and that this, this myth, the myth that, that everybody is... Um, has a plan and they, they have strategies and that they're, that events are unfolding according to someone's, you know, four-dimensional chess plan. That's never been true of anybody on Capitol Hill, in the White House. It's events as far as the eye can see and everything's contingency. Anything else come to mind? Well, I'll just, uh, I'm just reminded of a conversation I had years ago when somebody had said something about how Washington can, Washington's a really tough town. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, and someone who'd been around for a while said, "It's it's not really a tough town, it's just a mean town." <laughs> <laughs> there, but if you're shameless enough, you always get a second, third, and fourth chance. Yeah, we we could we could talk about some of the people who are sufficiently shameless that 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 that's happened for. But I don't want to get. I'm trying not to make any new enemies right now. I've uh, I've got enough old ones. Um, anyway, thank you so much for coming on, Ramesh. I or. Ramesh, remote, remote. What? Dinesh. It's Dinesh. Dinesh. Thank yeah. you for uh, and um and I, oh, I I have issues with your new book, but that'll be come up another time. And uh, Ramesh Panuru, uh, fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, fellow at the National Review Institute, senior editor of National Review, and uh, and a just a terrific dancer. So thanks for coming. You're welcome. <laughs> So yesterday when I was at National Review in New York, I recorded my first episode of The Editors, and I already talked about that, so don't worry about that part. But Ryan Salam read his first, did his first attempt at a radio, at a podcast ad, and he did it for Casper as well. And it was so, I don't know what the right word is, mellifluous, sensual, um, it, it, it it made us all feel a little unsafe or that maybe like Ryan needed the room alone with the ad copy. Um, Rich Lowry literally was like doubled over laughing at how just how committed Ryan was to it. And it, I found it it was almost emasculating is the wrong word because it wasn't a particularly masculine reading. Um but he was so much better at it than I could ever be, and it kind of freaked me out because I was like, I knew I had to do this, this uh, um, ad as well. Um, so I'm going to just give it a try. Uh, you should know that uh, I, I am required to read this whole thing, which is fine by me. These guys have been advertising with Glop, this other podcast that I do with um, Pudoritz and Long for a long time, and I, I actually have their product, and I think it's great. 
So I don't, I have no problem doing it. It's just, I, I kind of feel like a, you know, a hippie who has to put on a tie because I have to read this whole thing straight like, um, like a pitch man. And it's just not, doesn't come naturally to me, but, um, I'm, uh, that doesn't mean I don't like the product. Um, I do. And it's for Casper, Casper Masters. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. Casper mattresses provide all the support the human body needs in all the right places. Mm. After all, you spend one third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Casper brand mattresses combine multiple supportive memory foam for a quality sleep surface with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. Sometimes you get too much sink, sometimes you get too much bounce with other products, both sink and bounce. The breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. There are three mattress models available, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential. And Casper is not just a mattress company. They offer a wide array of products to ensure an overall better sleep experience. Casper can offer such affordable prices because they cut out the middleman and sells directly to you, the consumer, with over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars across Casper, Amazon, Google. Casper is becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. Casper is designed, developed, and assembled here in the United States of America. They offer no hassle returns if you're not completely satisfied. Your Casper will be delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-that-sized box. And that's true, because the one they sent me, um, it wasn't quite, you know, small enough to fit in, like, underdog's uh, weird amphetamine pill ring, but it was really small and shocking, and it kind of exploded when you unpacked it. It was cool. And they offer free shipping and returns in the U.S. and even in Canada. And you can be sure your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. And here's the thing. This is a special offer. This is the first ad on The Remnant. And it's get a special deal for listening to The Remnant. You can start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper and get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash Dingo, and using the promo code DINGO at checkout. That's casper.com slash DINGO, and use the promo code DINGO for $50 off any mattress. Terms and conditions apply. But remember, it's DINGO, not Spaniel, not, you know, uh, Bernie's Mountain Dog, but DINGO. So thanks, my, my thanks to Casper, and thanks to you guys for putting up with me. All right, so thanks to Ramesh for coming in. It was a, uh, it wasn't the kind of passionate, f bomb laden kind of conversation that I usually get from Ramesh, but it, it was. Uh, uh, I hope it was enlightening to some people. Well, it wasn't during Pon Far, so maybe that's why he was more restrained. That's probably true. Although now that Ramesh is married, Pon Far doesn't, you know. But for those who don't know, Pon Far is the Vulcan mating ritual that uh, every seven years, like salmon going upstream, Vulcans must return back to their planet um, to make whoopee. I think it's the technical term. <laughs> so, so anyway, yeah. Uh, what else? What are other agenda items? Well, um, Jonah, you wanted to talk about, or I want to know how the commentary roast went. Ah. The commentary you got roast. roasted, right? I got roasted. I will say up front, this is a um, brilliant idea conceived of by um, my friend John Podhoritz. Uh, I'm the eighth, eighth roast e. Mm. Who are the other people on that list? Do you know? All more important than me by a far sight. Uh, the, I think the first one was Dick Cheney. Oh wow! Uh, no, I think wasn't the first one uh, Norm Podhoritz. Oh, it might have been Norm Podhoritz. Yeah, because I mean, John, such a sweet, wonderful man. Roasted both of his parents. <laughs> um, and, uh, but the Dick Cheney one is the most famous and supposedly was the best one mm -hmm. because it was everyone brought their A game and it was just one shoot a guy in the face and demand an apology joke after another. And part of the brilliance of it is, is that, look, I, I love the AI annual dinner. I go to a lot of these, or yeah, I feel like I go to a lot of these kinds of things where you hear someone important give an important speech. But 
those kind of hit diminishing returns after a while. And sometimes the speech isn't good. Mm-hmm. And the brilliance of the roast thing is, you first of all, you get a bunch of people to show up to speak that people want to hear. And um, at least some of them are going to be funny. Right. And... And and again, the commentary roast thing, part of the genius of it is, like all these big annual dinner things, it's a fundraising thing. And so, you know, people, rich people will pay good money to see Dick Cheney made fun of, you know. And um, uh, and they've done it to other sort of big muckety-mucks. Roger Hertog was one. And uh, um, anyway, so I went and... I was roasted, and I got to say, it's still difficult for me to process the whole thing because um, we're on the doll to John Powers touch you. <laughs> yeah, um, it was it was just I got to say, I mean, there were a lot of lies, a lot of yeah. base slanders, um, and uh, but those bothered me so. They I shouldn't say bothered me. Those made me so much less uncomfortable than the compliments did because <laughs> uh, everyone you know. So the people who roasted me were Steve Hayes, Rich Lowry. Um, John Bedoritz, who's like the MC, so he went, you know, lunch. Rob Long, and one of my oldest friends, the guy who was the best man at my wedding, this guy Scott McLucas, who no one has heard of, and we made a lot of jokes about how no one had ever heard of him. <laughs> uh, but he and I have, you know, one of the jokes I had said when I got up to respond to everybody was that, you know, Scott had really sort of pulled his punches because um, he has some really, really great ammo on me. Yeah. The only problem is it's sort of like coming forward about what really happened on Jeffrey Epstein's plane. <laughs> if you uh, you incriminate yourself by anything that you bring up. So, like, he could have gone... Assured with... mutual destruction. Exactly. It's like, turn your key, Scotty. Turn your key. And so it's like, uh, like he could have gone into the long story, and I cut this material, but, like, uh, he could have gone into a long story about how we had tra- how I had trashed a London hotel room in the in the mid 90s and it's true but the reason i trashed it is because i was drunkenly wrestling with scott <laughs> and uh um and the and we did other terrible things i'm not going to get into that our, our our decision trees have gone awry many times and um <laughs> but i i lobbied for scotty to be one of the the roasters cuz uh he is a master of the rye sort of wedding toast yeah bachelor party toast kind of thing and i knew it would be good and you know um and hayes is great and brett bear is great brett did it by video um and his thing was actually pretty funny um it was pretty well done uh but it was full of lies like he does this whole shtick where i i'm calling him while he's recording it asking for more panel time and like i've never asked him for panel time in my life um fake news yeah it was a lot of fake news there was an enormous amount of fake news and um but then they all felt compelled to say nice things about me. And some of them were way too nice. And it was really funny how um, listeners of Glop will appreciate this, that John Podoritz has this neurotic shtick about how I'm on TV more than him and I give speeches more than he does. And then Rich gave this wildly inaccurate and overly generous thing about how I'm the best writer of my generation or something like that. And Pod just had a meltdown on stage. It was like, well, wait a second. I'm like eight years older than him. So maybe I, you know, because I just couldn't handle it. Um, and, but which was really funny. And like Rob Long was like making fun of pod pretty mercilessly. Um, and I did this whole extemporaneous thing. I hadn't planned on, cause I didn't know that Rob, like I have a beard now. Steve Hayes has a beard. So a lot of beard jokes mm-hmm. and, and then Rob Long has this beard, but he, he, it's, it's kind of like, um, uh, almost a Santa beard on him, but not quite. Yeah. And well, <clears throat> I made this joke about how he was, um, that he, you know, I was like, yeah, you know, we all got beards, but I mean, only one of us looks like he should be driving a windowless panel van <laughs> cruising like playgrounds. Um, and, um, you know, with a tear stained mattress in the back of the van. And I was like, I kind of shocked. I couldn't figure out why Rob was carrying so much candy, but now I kind of get it. And, <laughs> um, and the thing is, so, Everyone laughed at that, right? And then later I made a joke about how when I was finished making fun of everybody, I said, you know, and as as David Korn likes to say, I kid because I love. And there was like these shocked gasps. Like this was beyond the pale. And I was like, oh, wait a second. I can call Rob Long a pedophile, but like making fun of this sexual harasser is like like beyond the left wing sexual. It was a really weird reaction. It caught me off guard. Yeah, I guess those commentary crowds are somewhat predictable. You know how those neocons are. Yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, 
So when does it air on Comedy Central? I don't think it'll air. It is off the record. Okay. Um, I'm not. I'm not even sure I'm supposed to be doing this. I suspect that we might run some excerpts on um on Glop, but that's really going to be up to John. Nice. But it was a lot of fun for everybody else, you know. And it was like getting the crowd back together. And one of the, one of the funniest things was so there were a couple of people I know through AEI who bought tables because they're friends of mine and all that kind of stuff. And it's expensive. It's a fundraiser. And so one of them was came up to me. And uh, and he's a good friend, and he was just like, so commentary. Who, what, who, what? who yeah. reads this? <laughs> and like, and and so I gave him the whole history of uh, commentary. It used to be a left wing magazine, and it became, it sort of moved into neoconservatism in the 1970s. And Gene Kirkpatrick and and a bunch of those guys were the, um, sort of the a lot of the intellectual shock troops of Reaganism came in through commentary, and he was like, oh, that's fascinating, that's fascinating, yeah. and. But it was, um, it was funny. He, at, at my friend's table, he brought a very, very wealthy, um, prominent Jewish guy um, from New York who's liberal, you know, which is not shocking. And the guy was like, it's so strange. I, I do stuff at the plaza all the time. And, um, and I do stuff with Jewish groups all the time. And who are these people? I don't know any of these people. <laughs> and so it was just kind of weird. And, and, um, but it was fun, you know, and I'm glad I did it. And, um, and unlike some previous roasties, I at least returned fire on, on the roasters, which was fun. Um, Surprised Dick Cheney didn't return fire. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that joke had been made at the time. <laughs> well, I wasn't there, so it's, I'm, I'm still being clever in retro, in retrospect. But you were at this thing. I wasn't at the Dick Cheney roast, yes, is what no, I'm saying. No, because you were, like, in high school. Yeah. Um, not until I invent my time machine while I go back to that roast. So, uh, did you like it? Yeah, it was uh, It was very swanky. I had never been to the plaza before. I had never been to New York before. Yeah. There was there was a bathroom attendant. Uh, I had a seat with a lot of the stable writers at National Review, which I don't think I really deserved, but sometimes in life you just have to accept blessings as they come. Did you sit with Charlie Cook? Yeah, Cook, uh, Jay Nornlinger, uh, and um, Andy McCarthy. Oh, cool. Did you call Charlie British Shaggy to his face? No, I did not, uh, because he he does a lot of the back-end production work for this podcast, so I try to be nice to him. I think that's wise. Uh, um, although he, and he doesn't look as shaggy anymore, you know. He's had to clean up his act since taking a leadership role. That's right. Yeah. Were there any podcast jokes made by the roasters? There were. There were a bunch. Um, a bunch made by me. Uh, one of the ones was that. Uh, so I, had, well, I thought here's the whole setup. Um, so, and no offense to delicate listeners, <laughs> but I made this joke about how the podcast, the, the commentary roast is brilliant, which I think is right, and it's fun. Yeah. And one of the reasons why John does it is because he is a frustrated lover of of the performing arts and yeah. theater and he always wanted to be sort of a stand-up comedian or an actor type and and you know and he has this great passion about uh musical theater and so i had this joke saying that you know normally the hardest part about being that passionate about the musical theater is telling your parents you're gay um and and i said you know but for john it's something different it's um you know it's just keeping his love of musical theater to himself because he likes to talk about it some people haven't can't quite see this because he has the same problem when it comes to Israel, politics, um, religion, that suspicious mole. Um, he's just a talker. And then I had the, that was the setup for, you know, and I know of what I speak um, because I've been doing a podcast with John for the last few years, though the casual listener would not know that <laughs> <laughs> because John does all the talking. So um, even in your own podcast, he keeps coming up. Yeah, no, he does. So, another one of those perfidious neocons is just you know. Um, yeah, you, didn't you? So you've been ranting to me lately off off the mic about neocons. But what do you want to say? Why don't you just, for the benefit of the listeners, why don't you air that dirty laundry to the world now? Well, I, I won't do the whole thing because um, it's. I, I think I want to write about it, but it's weird. First of all, what got me thinking about it was um, on Twitter lately. I keep running into this and makes me it, I'm somewhat suspicious that it's a body kind of campaign thing. I don't know if it's Russia or it's, there's some alt-right 
meme generation thing going on because it seems too coordinated and too and the posts are too similar. But I've seen two or three threads now from people claiming that the quote unquote never Trumpers are like the neocons of the 1970s and they're going to switch parties and join the Democrats. And there's a superficial plausibility to it when you look at someone like Jen Rubin, right, or Evan McMullen, where well, they... Well, didn't one of the Kagans uh, do something like, like this? Like voted for Hillary or something like yeah. that? Yeah. So there, 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 there's the superficial plausibility to it um, if you cherry-pick who you define as a never-Trumper, right? And so there are a lot of people who are invested in this idea that there is a monolithic ideological coherence to the never-Trump position, right? And they want to paint this incredibly broad brush and include everybody who's critical of Trump and sort of read them out of the movement. And this is sort of a subdivision of this. And it, anyway, what, what, what's interesting to me about it is how, um, how much the history of neoconservatism gets, is gotten wrong. And I've ranted about this before, but, you know, my take on neoconservatism, for people who don't know and people who are actually listening and care, which is a, probably a very small minority of you, neoconservatism has always been erroneously described as a foreign policy thing since the 70s. Um, and it got its height during the Iraq War, where you know every basically Newt Gingrich was called a neocon, and Tom Delay was called a neocon, right? <laughs> and what what endures with this is this sort of hodgepodge, mixed bag, you know, junk drawer, cherry picking thing where people say that neoconservatism is really socialism or liberalism or Trotskyism, right? And they they don't know the history or they read stupid mouth breather websites that mangle the history and they think it's real. And so anyway, the original story of neoconservatism takes place, at least the, the sort of origin story, if you were going to do the comic book, right, <laughs> would be um, at City University in New York, there was Alcove 1 and Alcove 2 in the cafeteria at City University of New York. And Alcove, I believe it was Alcove 1, I always get them backwards. Alcove 1 was Irving Crystal, Irving Howe, uh, Nathan Glazer, a bunch of Trotskyite Jews, right, who were anti-Stalinist. Mm-hmm. And then the other alcove were all the asshole Stalinists who, you know, thought it was okay to mass murder people and all of the rest. And this fight in 1930s New York, Jewish New York, was a big intellectual fight that mattered very little in the grand scheme of things. But the anti-Stalinist Jewish intellectual Seymour Martin Lipset, um, Albert Wolstetter, the elder one, um, they... This was marked the beginning of their break with communism or with socialism. And only a handful of them ever actually became so-called neocons. And so the original process was of moving from left to right. And it is more a description. It's more of an adjectival thing about a process than a coherent ideological agenda. And it wasn't until... And so the original, the, the ur-neocon, the patron saint of neoconservatism was, was Irving Kristol, who was a huge influence on me. And he used to be a fellow here at the American Enterprise Institute. And Irving founded the classic neoconservative journal called The Public Interest, which was entirely dedicated to domestic policy. And it was entirely dedicated to critiquing the great society and the failures of, 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 of liberalism, of New Deal liberalism and great society liberalism. The idea, there's a second wave of so-called neoconservatives who come in the 70s and they're, surrounded, they're part of the sort of the commentary crowd. And... They were the ones who sort of all of a sudden realized, holy crap, communists suck, right? And they became sort of latter-day Cold Warriors. Norman Podoritz is sort of the leader of them, but Gene Kirkpatrick. These are former Democrats, Bill Bennett. And these were, they were brought in by the Cold War stuff, but they weren't the first wave neocons. But again, it was a process kind of thing. And it was only by the late 70s that neoconservatism was starting to take on this reputation as being sort of anti-communist, more hawkish on foreign policy, right? AI became a big hotbed of neoconservatism for its hawkishness on foreign policy. But the problem was, and this is where you get into trouble, whenever I try to talk to people about, okay, explain to me what a neocon is, right? So some people say, well, it's a Jewish conservative. Well, or, you know, of the, I think, 30 founders, the 30 original names on National Review's masthead, I think, you know, six or seven of them were Jewish, okay? So, you know, were they neocon? Was National Review a neocon magazine in 1955? I don't think so. Well, then they're, 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 they're foreign, por- foreign policy hawks or warmongers, depending on who you talk to. Okay, so 
the neocons are, are warmongers and foreign policy hawks because they were for uh, better containment. When people like Barry Goldwater were talking about lobbing nukes in the Kremlin window and wanted rollback instead of containment, right? I mean, so the traditional conservatives, the Buckleyite conservatives were more hawkish than the neocons, but the neocons get the blame for being called hawks. Um, and then also the problem is, they, well, they're, they're Jewish conservatives. Well, you know, Gene Kirkpatrick's not Jewish. Bill Bennett's not Jewish. Well, James Q. Wilson's not Jewish. You go down a long list of people who aren't Jewish who are called neoconservatives, you know, um, Father Newhouse was often called a neoconservative and, you know, first Jewish priest I've heard of, <laughs> you know. And so invariably you get people who either know that neoconservatism is a very amorphous label and they're deliberately deceitful about it because they want to, I mean, like, you know, they want to have this invidious guilt by association thing. Oh, that's, that's that former Trotskyite crap, right? Well, you know, Bill Bennett was never a Trotskyite, you know. Ben Wannenberg was never a Trotskyite. Gene Kirkpatrick was never a Trotskyite. Um, and if you actually talk to William F. Buckley about this, as I have, you know, um, which you can't now, alas, the, what the neocons did was they didn't bring in anti-communism. Conservatism was damn friggin' anti-communist before the neocons showed up. You could look it up. What they brought in was, um, the language of social science. As Buckley put it, you know, conservatism prior to the neocons was very Aristotelian. Right. Very Thomistic. It started from first principles. And it's sort of like the difference between von Misian libertarian economics and Hayekian libertarian economics. Von Misian is all Kantian and categorical and Hayekian is all empirical and, 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 and sort of uh, uh, pragmatic. Um, and conservative, conservatism was very sort of Kantian in its categorical commitments. Right. And the neocons brought in a whole bunch of like regression analysis and numbers and all that stuff that I think is witchcraft, but was actually pretty useful. And they actually knew how to talk to the left on their own lingua franca about conservative ends. But, you know, the most famous definition of neoconservatism was Irving Kristol's, where he said a neoconservative is a liberal who's been mugged by reality. And it's a great line. And it's been butchered by a lot of people. But that's basically Burkean conservatism. You know, that's basically this idea that the world is flawed and that we run into problems and and that planning is very difficult. You know, Burke talks about, you know, the, the, the dangers of relying on calculators and sophisters and all this kind of stuff. But what neoconservatism did was it updated the language. And I just think it's very interesting that all of a sudden I'm just seeing little bits of this sort of neocon butchering nonsense come back into the conversation. And I think some of it is driven by the paleocon crowd, which wants to claim that it's the oldest tradition in conservatism when in fact it's the, among the newest traditions in conservatism because the paleo is a reference to neo and they came later. But anyway, that gets really nerdy and weedy and it's just probably what, more than you wanted to yeah, know. Yeah, just what this podcast needs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I more apologize. nerdiness. I apologize, listeners, but <clears throat> oh, so you want to talk about music. Yeah, we've gotten a lot of good submissions and so we are reviewing them. Um, thank you for that. Please keep sending them. We're going to keep yeah, please do. open for another week or so and, and see where, where we are with that. Uh, the remnant pod at gmail.com is the right address. Um, and we've been getting lots of other great feedback there as well um, that we've been reviewing and, and talking about. And so, yeah, we're going to hopefully have a, some new bumper music soon. Yeah, new bumper music soon. More advertisers coming soon. Hopefully, I mean, God bless Casper. They're wonderful people. I love their product. And, you know, when... You have to dispose of a body. Their product actually is really handy, too, because anyway, that's a different story. Um, but there'll be some ad copy that we can actually sort of have a little more flexibility with and have a little more fun with. Um, yeah, that's what you always do on Glop. It seems like uh, John can actually get through a reading of an ad without you and Rob, like, d digressing him and then him laughing uncontrollably. And then it ends up turning, like, an... A thirty-second ad into like a five-minute segment on the podcast. Yeah, and um, um, and you'll you'll notice that there's a reason why I have I, don't, I have never read ad copy on Glop. It's always John's job, <laughs> um, and uh, so I apologize in advance both to Casper and to listeners for if I didn't do it too well. And um, yeah, so remnantpod at gmail .com If you have other music suggestions and all the rest, and and also for advertising, we can forward you to the right people for all of that. And I guess that's all we got, right? Or Well, I have one thing. Uh, you mentioned that 
it's it's no longer possible to talk to William F. Buckley. Well, I have talked to William F. Buckley, not through a seance. I had a I had a dream once in which I got the chance to ask William F. Buckley, who's I know is dead, um, unfortunately, what uh, what movie the afterlife most re- resembled. Uh-huh. And he said Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> that was his answer, and that's all he said. We're going to get you the best doctors, Jack. Um, <laughs> um, uh, okay, thank you, thank you for, for sharing that. Um, I, I should note my wife says that I'm way too mean to Jack. Um, I, I'm not sure that's true. Um, I replace his kibble regularly, whether he needs it or not. Um, Interesting that you would compare me to a dog. He loves dogs. It's a good thing. Yeah, but he loves them as dogs, um, not as not as humans. I have no response to that. Um, <laughs> So anyway, uh, thanks again for tuning in. Oh, if you get a chance, that's what I wanted to bring up. Um, I did a long conversation with Bill Crystal on Conversations with Crystal. If you Google it, it comes up pretty quickly. Um, I'm getting some nice feedback about that, and I promised them that I would I would plug it a bit. And, um, and check out this week's episode of The Editors, which I did for, for National Review. My voice sounded even more hungover than it does today. I basically just rode in on a cloud of Irish whiskey to do that thing. Um, and because uh, I, I I don't drink before public appearances. Um, I've learned the hard way that drinking and speeches don't mix. But after the roast, I felt I needed to drink to forget. And so I, I was I was terribly overserved. Probably was. Yeah. So with that, uh, thanks all for tuning in and tune in next week when uh, we'll have more sounds come out of our mouths. Thank you.